0: Good day, everyone. I'm George Selgin, Director of the Cato Institute Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives, and I'm very pleased to welcome you to today's conversation. As a reminder before we start, <clears throat> our guest will be taking audience questions at the end of our interview, and you can submit those at any time via Cato's own webpage or on Facebook or Twitter and YouTube. Uh, depending on how you're listening and watching, of course. Please, when you uh, do this, uh, consider including the hashtag KatoEcon. Thanks a lot. Today, I'm speaking with Karen Petru, a managing partner at Federal Financial Analytics, Inc., and author of the just-released book, Engine of Equality, pardon me, Uh, The Fed and the Future of Wealth in America. Welcome, Karen.
1: That's George.
0: Barbara Rem, American Bankers' Editor at Large, once called you the sharpest mind anal- mind analyzing banking policy today, maybe ever. So expectations are very high, and we're very <laughs> keen to know. <laughs> we're very keen to know why you think the Fed has been contributing to inequality. But first, tell us a little bit about why you chose to take on this topic.
1: I, thank you for the, for remembering Barb's comments, George. They they still start on me every time I hear them, but I really appreciated them a great deal. I started thinking about this because um, it seemed very clear to me, even early after, as the great financial crisis of 2008 ebbed And the post-crisis framework began to evolve that it was going to have unintended consequences. And uh, we write papers in my firm um, that reflect our opinion. Sometimes we do it for clients, sometimes we do it just because the issue seems really important, and um, that's one of the things um, we do. So in 2011, on our own um, initiative, uh, I wrote a paper Pointing out the fact that I thought the, the post crisis framework would have unintended consequences because the stronger you made the banks, the more their costs would rise. And that while that would make banks a great deal safer, the financial system might well get weaker. And of course, I think we've seen that, that, that came true in all too much uh, fury in March of 2020. But I didn't incorporate monetary policy into my thinking about the framework after 2008 until I started working on a paper for one of our clients about the unintended consequences of the intersection of monetary and regulatory policy in early 2016. And the more we did that, the more clear it was that the monetary regulatory policy collision would not just make banks safer and the non-bank system work less secure, but that it also had deeply unintended consequences in the kinds of loans banks were making or mostly not making, uh, and in the structure of the U.S. financial system. And one of those major uh, effects was inequality, economic inequality. And I think it's very important to think about inequality in terms of both income and wealth. We talk a lot about income inequality, but wealth inequality is at least as important because a family that cannot save for the future is one that will not be able to hand anything down to the next generation. I call my book Engine of Inequality because that's how it works. The richer you get, the richer, the richer you are, the richer you get, the poorer you are, the poorer you get. Unless something changes the speed of the engine, speeds that process up or puts it into reverse. And it became clear to me as I did this work in 2016 that ultra low interest rates and the Fed's huge portfolio combined with the impact of the rules was making America less and less equal. And I finished my first round of thinking about this right before the 2016 election, and you all will recall that Hillary Clinton ran on what the Fed was saying at the time that the U.S. economy in 2015-2016 was what it likes to call, the Fed likes to call, a good place. Hillary Clinton was running around and said, look, we've recovered from the financial crisis, things are getting better. And millions and millions of voters said, hell no, this is no good place for me. African-American voters stayed home, high school educated white men came out. It was a very angry election and we've had a very angry four years ever since. So I became even more convinced that Americans know what the policy establishment in Washington didn't and that this isn't a good place and financial policy plays a major role in making it so.
0: So so in your book, uh, you argue that the Fed particularly has contributed to the rise in inequality. You 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 go beyond talking about the Fed. You talk about uh, other factors, including shadow banking and uh, and and uh, others. But I want to focus first on on the Fed. And uh, you first offer arguments as to how the Fed uh, made things worse, and then you go on to suggest remedies. You uh, to propose remedies for uh, this. I want to proceed the same way today, uh, let's talk about causes first and then let's, uh, let's get to remedies. Uh, and let's start with monetary policy, which clearly is extremely important in your argument. You observe that the Fed's unconventional policies, which is, include both uh, the near-zero interest rates and quantitative easing, have, and I quote now, ruled over, ruled over since 2008. And uh, you point out that the correlation between these and sharply increased inequality, I should go like this one, quoting, and grave financial market fragility is no coincidence. Okay. Give us a quick summary of the causal connection beyond the correlation uh, and start, let's just start with SERP with and just as quickly as you can, and then we'll move, we must have time for all the rest. So. Uh, if you can, uh-huh. the more you can condense it, and we'll we'll talk more about it once you've presented the basics. So start with the zero interest rates and, and how those mm-hmm. factor in.
1: Sure. I think there are three drivers of how the Fed monetary policy has made the United States less equal. But let me step back. And it's really important. We don't think about the Fed as an engine of inequality. There's a great deal of discourse, and it's important discourse about other causes of economic inequality demographics, certain inevitabilities, technology, education, or the lack thereof, globalization, tax policy. And all of these are, as my book shows, key and important drivers of inequality. But economic inequality is fundamentally about money. Who gets it? Who has it? That's the fuel for the inequality engine. And there is no agency in the United States, no policy as directly uh, omnipotent over money as the central bank, because that's monetary policy directly. And by referral, regulatory policy drives money dramatically in different directions. So when you have ultra-low interest rates, which we've had rates below zero on a in inflation-adjusted real terms since 2008, off and on for the entire decade, certainly now, you do two things. You create market incentives for yield chasing because many investors, pensions, funds, long-term insurance companies and Indeed, most of us don't want to earn less than nothing in inflation-adjusted terms. We are looking for ways to make money. So the markets have risen dramatically. And you can see in my book on tables about the correlation between Fed policy and equity market increases judged by the S&P. And that distorts the the inequality because, Most Americans don't own stock. If you look, you can say, well, yes, many middle class Americans own stock, like in their 401ks and so forth. But the top 1% of America owns 53% of financial assets in this country. It's very disproportionately lucrative to the wealthiest Americans when the markets go up, as they have. And that's what we've seen. The rich have gotten much, much richer. Before COVID in 2019, the top one percent of the United States owned as much wealth as the entire bottom 50 percent. And that is directly and clearly, I think, in my book shown because the markets have just gone up. Now, the Fed, I think, has fueled that not only by ultra low interest rates, but by two other policies. One is its portfolio. When the Fed has a huge portfolio and it started in 2008 with about 800 billion dollars. Right now it has seven and a half trillion and it's on pace to grow to about 10 trillion by the end of the year. That sucks safe assets like treasury obligations, agency paper out of the financial system. The idea here was that banks were going to use the money that the Fed gave them through purchasing these assets to make loans, but that hasn't worked. Part of the reason is that the economy had the weakest recovery since the second world war And part of it is the impact of all the rules on the banks. So all the Fed has done with its big portfolio, there's a great deal of research to show its impact on output waned dramatically after 2010. Its impact on equity prices remains strong. And the Fed has not let markets function. It's really using financial markets with the real economy. So it's put a safety net under the financial markets, and we don't have market discipline anymore. We really have moral hazard, and that's driven up markets. It's made the financial system still more vulnerable, and it's made economic inequality a great deal worse.
0: Karen, let's take take up QE uh, later on. Uh, We will get to that, but I want to focus still on uh, low-interest rate policy. Now, you speak of you speak of the Fed's having, and I quote here again, kicked interest rates to the floor by its heavy-handed policy. Now, uh, I'm pretty sure Fed officials and others would instead claim that t- to avoid unemployment, the Fed had no choice but to keep its target settings low for for most of the period in question. Certainly, for the immediate years immediately following 2008, and for those since, uh, for the period since uh, March uh, 2020, uh, that it had no choice but to lower rates to keep them in line with the natural interest rates, uh, which were themselves made low by demographic and other factors beyond central banks' uh, control. Um, Now, this is not something you address in the book, but how would you respond to that counter-argument
1: I hope I do address it some in the book because I try to be as balanced as I can. And it's an important, it's a very important and a very fair question. And I would respond to that first by saying we had the weakest recovery since the Second World War. And in my book, I demonstrate that that low employment, low unemployment that the Fed took such pride in, in in 2016, 17, 18, wasn't all that low. They measured it in a very favorable way. One of the Fed's biggest mistakes, and I spend a lot of time on this in the book, is it measures the economy and therefore its own success in aggregates and averages. So it looked at certain data about employment and took great comfort in that. We've just seen uh, last week, both Chairman Powell and Leo Brainard have given speeches that said, well, you know, maybe we did that wrong. That's great. I'm glad they see that now. They did do that wrong. They did the same thing on other key indicators like net worth. The Fed has taken great credit in comfort in net worth increases that the average American household is richer. You look at distributional median data, you see an enormous shift, as I said before, to the top one and the top 10%. And that screws up the, mon- the one of the, the bulwarks of monetary policy, which is expecting wealthier households to be the bulwark of marginal propensity to consume that's how you spur employment that's how you spur demand and you get growth and we haven't and i think the data from 2010 to 2019 show that the fed very low rates didn't spur employment It certainly spurred pet capital markets it spurred distributions like dividends and stock buybacks it's, it's it's drove equity prices high but it also destroyed the capacity of lower income households to save for the future and to even have a small rainy day fund that would protect them under an adversity. And one of the reasons I think the COVID crisis hit lower income households as hard as it did is because they had no buffers. And who could, you can't say, you can put your money in the bank and you lose money. We, the Fed didn't get what it wanted in employment, it didn't get what it wanted in growth, and it cost vulnerable households dearly in the process.
0: Let me, uh, let, I, I do want to take up COVID particularly, because the COVID crisis is a very important part of your book. And so uh, I'm going to come to that specifically later on. But uh, regarding uh, what you just said, you mentioned uh, uh, Leo Brainard, <clears throat> but, but she and others <clears throat> who have indeed said the Fed blew it by uh, not adjusting its interest rates uh, uh, in a way that would uh, achieve maximum employment, among other problems. Uh, but they argue that the problem, she argues and others argue that the problem wasn't that the rates were too low, but that the Fed raised its rates too high starting in 2015. So, um, and of course, that was a period uh, when rates after that, uh, starting in 2015, they went up eventually to, I think, uh The the upper limit of the Fed's uh, target range went up as high as two and a half percent where it stayed for about six or seven months before the COVID crisis. Um, Oh, sorry. It fell. Sorry. It fell after seven months and then it fell a lot more in the COVID crisis. So so their position is very different than yours. You seem to be saying the Fed should have raised rates sooner and perhaps more they're saying it should have raised them later and perhaps less. So how do you, um, what would you say to Leo Brainerd and others who take that opposite view?
1: I think they're thinking very conventionally because that is the classic monetary policy nostrum. If you want to spur employment and growth, you drop rates. Um, but it doesn't work. And the reason it is because that is, in my opinion, thinking about, the American economy, the way it was when she, I, you, many of us listening, many of you all listening in, when we went to graduate school, because the United States was equal up until about 1980. It was still pretty equal until the early 2000s. And then in 2010, and there are charts in my book that show this, we got a lot more unequal really fast. This is a very different economy. So that marginal propensity to consume, that is is one of the bulwarks of the premise for ultra low interest rates as a growth, as an accommodative policy doesn't exist anymore. The way GDP is measured doesn't move through the economy anymore. In 1975, we had rich people, we had poor people, we had a very solid middle class and even the poorest American earned his or her share of GDP in relation to his or her income. In 2018, the last year for these data, the top 1% of the United States by income earned 300% of the equitable share it got in 1975. Well, the economy doesn't work the same. And we've seen that. The Fed, the Fed was been flummoxed. Why all that ultra accommodative policy, the huge portfolio, ultra low rates, I can remember Janet Yellen speculating that maybe they weren't thinking the right way about the cost of cell phones, that maybe the economy was working just differently than they expected, but they weren't looking at the, the, the elephant in the room, which is distributional reality. The real economy is different than the average data on which the Fed was measuring itself and the, against the economy.
0: Let, let's uh, talk a little bit more about QE. Um, uh there's one little thing there that where I think uh, I want uh, uh, <clears throat> to pick at it's a, it's something where in a sense, Karen, you, I think you give the fed a little more credit <laughs> than you, you might, <laughs> you say, you say, uh, that, uh, that, <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll see what I mean. Uh, you write yeah. uh, in response uh, to uh, um uh uh, you say that uh that banks did not didn't just take the money and lend it out that is the qe uh, reserves as the fed's economic theories expected that's your quote but my understanding is uh that the fed never expected that to happen in fact that they understood that banks would be piling up reserves as they created them under this new regime and that um, that QE was, in fact, pushing a, uh, a, on a string in that sense. But uh, that the express purpose of QE was to lower long-term rates and get people to, in fact, uh, chase for yield uh, by boosting the prices of longer-term acts, uh, uh, assets. So there, the sense in which I think my criticism is not inconsistent with your complaints is that uh, uh, QE's effect on inequality were actually uh, whatever they were less unintentional than you suggest, because it really was an explicit attempt to to work on long-term, uh, 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 get long-term rates down, and which of course pushes security prices and asset prices up, longer term especially. Is that still? Do you see what I'm saying? You're still, uh, th- 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 that's still consistent with your overall complaint about the effects of this policy. Is that right?
1: Oh, I agree. I agree with that. I do think the Fed was expecting the banks to to lend. I think it failed to take account of both. Uh, and we've, there have been, there are data, there are Fed studies. There's even, as I recall, some, some talk at the Fed, particularly in the FOMC minutes that have come about, about how surprised they were that the banks didn't lend And they've said, oh, well, you know, it turns out the banks were more risk averse than we thought, Um, which with all the rules in place, that's not a complete surprise. Um, They also, the Fed has blamed uh, the lack of lending as a result of QE on on, um, low demand, because that's, of course, what you have in recessions, which we had, as well as very, very weak recoveries and they didn't count on the cost of banks to, to lending through the, the new capital rules. But yes, QE was de- definitely an effort to set short-term market rates, but there was expectation, as as I recall, um, I could be wrong, but as I recall, that the banks would take the money and lend, and of course they didn't. Hmm.
0: Let's let's turn to, I wanna talk about uh, some of your arguments about bailouts and market support and, and financial regulation. Uh, as well if we have uh, some time but I think uh, the best way to do that is to turn to the to the covid 19 crisis because uh, mm-hmm. that uh, that's a case in point and we definitely want to have time to talk about that uh, you claim that uh, that various policies by the fed and, and other regulators but the fed especially contributed to inequality during that occasion as well and these included uh, monetary and regulatory and that they also made the COVID-19, that they made the COVID-19 crisis a lot more severe, if I read you correctly, than it might have been. Um, of course, we, we all know that the COVID-19, uh, uh, that COVID-19 itself and the lockdowns and such had a lot to do with the crisis. And you're very clear that you're not denying that in in your book. But you also portray it as a, a financial crisis among other things and particularly as a as a sort of boom bust story if i read you right for which the fed and other financial regulators uh, were to blame and let me let me spell this out by reading a passage in your book you say uh <clears throat> federal banking agencies which include the fed repeatedly congratulated themselves from 2010 until the crisis of 2020 on the putative success of post-2008 rules, and now I'm paraphrasing or shortening your quote, and that uh, this uh, exposed all kinds of underlying fragility that had been left uh, uncorrected since 2008. So, um, now I suspect many reading this will think, hold on, the 2008 crisis with a started with a financial sector, it started there and involved insolvencies of all kinds of financial firms. Of course, we all know about the bank failures, and also those failures that were only avoided with huge bailouts. Uh, Whereas in 2020, things start with COVID. And the main problem, I think a Fed Fed people would say was financial sector, in the financial sector was illiquidity, rather than insolvency because of the lockdowns, etc. So therefore, They would argue this doesn't prove that Dodd-Frank and all the other things uh, between 2008 and recently uh, did not help to reduce significantly uh, financial fragility. So that's the counter argument, Karen. How how would you respond uh, to that?
1: Well, at first I do want to say, I don't, the, the, the Fed did not make the COVID crisis worse. It was really bad. It was outside an act out clearly, of course, the pandemic. And I think you said this, George, was outside the Fed's control, um, as were the lockdowns and, and other policies designed to stop, uh, reduce COVID spread. But the, the point about the financial system, I mentioned this earlier, is that the, the Fed and the um, Treasury Department have really mistook, mistaken the stability of the banks, the strength of the banks on the capital and liquidity side for the strength of the financial system. And the crisis hit with absolute fury in the financial markets because yes, it was a liquidity crisis in the, in the sense that the money market funds in particular were struck by sudden redemption demands and the The Fed, to its credit, recognized that as early as 2011 and fought very hard for there to be additional safeguards in particularly the prime institutional money market sector, which never were implemented and which led to significant vulnerability. But there was a solvency crisis. We haven't seen it. But the the, uh, prime institutional funds, as well as open-end funds, particularly the bond and the bank loan funds, were heavily invested in highly illiquid assets, but the reason those assets were illiquid is not only their structure, but because many of them, for example, leveraged loans had significant solvency issues a tremendous amount of sudden mark to market. If somebody all of a sudden says, gee, will this entity under this kind of macroeconomic strength begin to be able to repay debt that's leveraged eight times over earnings generously judged? There were strong solvency issues. So what did the Fed do? It stepped in not just to rescue the, the directly illiquid parts of the financial system, but those facing significant solvency risk in course, across the entire spectrum of corporate bonds, including junk bonds through the primary and secondary corporate credit facilities. This was a huge bailout and you can see it because the markets have just gotten riskier. Even though the macro economy is very weak, there is enormous demand for high risk securities and that's based on an expectation of continuing fed support i think that's a very dangerous policy
0: let's talk more about those uh, fed emergency lending programs during the covid uh, crisis the 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 133 facilities of course there were quite a few of them and we can't discuss them all in any detail but um, you uh, you make the point that uh, these were largely oriented towards Wall Street or the big players in the financial system and not the little guy, um, certainly uh, uh, not the smallest, smaller businesses. Even Main Street uh, facilities did not cater to the smaller businesses and not certainly not to households. But um, I could see a Fed official saying, well, yes, but For those, we had uh, the SBA's Paycheck Protection Program for the small firms, and, of course, we had unemployment insurance for households. Uh, So that's why the Fed's uh, emergency lending was oriented the way it was. Is that an adequate answer?
1: Oh, I don't think so. To your
0: criticisms? Hmm.
1: No, I don't think so. Because, (laughs) again, I think fiscal policy is clearly critical. And it stepped in. But fiscal policy also took um, the Fed on and very much blurred the line with the main street lending facility as well as the one to municipalities. What's the difference between a money market fund that's temporarily illiquid due to redemption demand and families that are suddenly unemployed and are looking for short term small dollar loans? The phenomenon is the same. They need emergency liquidity to honor their financial obligations, not this, not to purchase cars, although certainly we've seen Fed programs, for example, with QE expectations that it would boost auto lending and that sort. But I think the Fed, when a district in a nation as unequal as the United States, if you expect financial system rescues to support the economy as a whole, to trickle down through the economy as a whole, you will get a much more financialized high risky system and in a very weak real economy and the fed ultimately is responsible for full employment price stability and moderate interest rates that's the way its law reads it's consistent with its monetary policy mandate as set by congress
0: well we know though that the fed uh, the fed set up its main street programs and they were not catering to the small uh, businesses at all, of course, and certainly not to households. Uh, However, uh, they didn't do much for the businesses they were designed to help either. Uh, As I think everybody knows, the amount of actual lending that that took place under the Fed's Main Street programs was well short of what many had anticipated. Do you think that if the Fed had gotten into the business of lending to households or or even just small small firms, smaller firms. You think it would have done much better, or, or do you think it would have uh, uh, those, that such a, a facility that did that might have had the same fate? And how confident, in other words, are you that the Fed could have done the kind of offered the sort of support you're suggesting it might have, uh, but done so successfully on a, on a truly uh, adequate sc- scale?
1: I, don't th- I think the Fed would have done a terrible job as a direct lender, partly because it would make the same mistake, not the mistake. I mean, the, the law says in, sec- in 13.3 that the Fed should be providing only emergency liquidity support, doing so at penalty rates at the least possible risk. And that's an inherent contradiction and one of the reasons why the Fed set up, but the Fed didn't want to do the Main Street Program or for that matter, the Municipal Finance Facility. Congress forced it to do that. Then it set them up to take as little risk as possible, which meant it served only the most affluent customers. It could, same thing of the corporate bond facility. You saw Apple, with sitting on over $200 billion in cash make use of the Fed's corporate bond facility. It was very much a moral hazard, open window kind of situation. But what if the Fed not went to individual borrowers but created a facility to support short-term overdrafts as families were struggling to get their feet on the ground so that families could have avoided hundreds of dollars in bank overdraft fees and just bought themselves the equivalent of short-term small dollar loans, payday, kind of like a payday loan, except you do it through the banking system. What about facilities for financial institutions to support forbearance programs? These have been relatively, the banking system has stood up, but there are many other areas of the lending market where there isn't forbearance, particularly in the auto loan section, giving families a chance to get their liquidity houses in order and then come back and become, as a result, solvent and sound borrowers. It wasn't just the financial system that needed emergency liquidity support. It was, I think, households and small businesses, and the Fed could have done that and done it quite efficiently.
0: Let's, uh, let's turn to remedies, uh, Karen, because uh, I want to give the, the audience time to ask questions. I've already seen a few up on the screen here. Concerning uh, the low interest rate uh, the, the policies, uh, you recommend uh, that the Fed gradually lift uh, the rates to provide a living return, a living return. Um, could you just say quickly what, what that means, what do you conceive to be a a living return in this case? And what do you mean by gradually and how soon should they start?
1: I mean by a living return, same thing. In a sense, it's meant by a living wage in that a family, if it saves, has something to show for it. Just like if you work, you'll have something to show for it in terms of being able to live without poverty, without stress. What that rate is—it's it, certainly a not not a nominal. It's a real rate above inflation. I mean, yeah, I can still, you know, remember back in the day when rates were four or five percent—that was considered the standard rate—and then you could save for a down payment. You could families could put money away. I think going to um, short-term, long-term rates in the four or five percent rate would would be quite traumatic right now. But I do think very over time, particularly if if we get 6% GDP and the Fed gets its forecast for what things are going to look like in the second half of this year, the Fed, I think, is making a mistake waiting just for inflation. Of course, inflation may get it sooner than it thinks. If the economy is doing as well as the Fed says, it would be a better shared economy if households earning more money, low, moderate and middle-class households could put some of that money away. Uh,
0: and as you know, return. the Fed is, on inflation, as you know, the Fed has struggled to uh, meet its 2% target and is now seeking uh, to meet uh, a target that it only averages 2% and sometimes is above Uh, Most people think that uh, hiking interest rates more aggressively would uh, make it even harder for the Fed to hit 2%. Is your view that that's not true or that it doesn't really matter that much because there are more important considerations at play here?
1: I think it matters less. I think inflation can run a little hotter. Markets can take a little strain if we can find a way for families to accumulate a bit of wealth and become more sustainable borrowers we won't be running bubble asset price bubbles if we can reduce indebtedness which i think comes by allowing for savings you know we talked about like, the, the neighbor, yeah. my neighbor across the street <laughs> to me yesterday that she really loves low interest rates because she just refied her beach house that's mm-hmm. that's true she did but lower income households are seeing none of these low rates. Their borrowing costs remain very high in real terms.
0: But do you think that raising interest rates will, will raise inflation?
1: I, I think it might, if it could, them. but I think we can run a little hotter if we run a as, as long as the economy operates more equitably, because you will build a stronger base.
0: And, uh, Uh, One thing I didn't get to, uh, and I kind of like this part of your, uh, this particular thing, I have a special reason for liking this particular uh, part of your book. You say uh, that uh, despite all the research on optimal monetary policy by central bank staff and academics, that only one pre-COVID research paper, it's one by uh, Jim Bullard and Ricardo DiCecchio, Bullard, of course, at the... uh, uh, St. Louis Fed, on optimal monetary policy for the masses, That that's the only one that has a, a good heterogeneous model, agent uh, uh, model that takes into account the effects on uh, of different policies on inequality. Now, I'm a fan of that paper, as are many of my friends at Mercatus and elsewhere, because it ends up recommending uh, an GDP target. That's what Bullard is actually calling for, as opposed to price level or inflation targeting. Mm-hmm. However, however, the NGDP targeting by most accounts would, re- would have required lower interest rates in, in most of the period before uh, the recent crisis. And so is there some other heterogeneous agent <laughs> model that, that says interest rates need to go up to reduce inequality or is, uh, uh, is there a formal, is there any formal paper out there that, that reaches that conclusion? In such or should somebody be working on this?
1: Oh, I think so. a lot of people should be working on it. I wasn't so much endorsing the remedy as a very tentatively proposed remedy in that paper as I was the idea of thinking hard about it because the rest of the Federal Reserve has, has not done so. They did do a distributional look at the um, results of their new inflation tolerant policy, the, um, the hotter policy adopted last year but it, I think it, it, it assumes still conventional assumptions that ultra low rates would lead to more employment. And it just hasn't worked. And that's my real, po- it just doesn't work.
0: I want to turn to your uh, remedy for the effects of the vast increase in the federal reserves portfolio, which mm-hmm. you argue is by propping up security prices and other things is, is has been a big contributor to uh, inequality. And, uh, and so I take it that uh, uh, a quick normalization of the Fed's portfolio is part of also part of your proposed solutions or ways to make things better. Uh, but what about the the repo market turmoil of the fall of 2009? Uh, most experts, and and this includes me, uh, uh, full disclosure, uh, <clears throat> uh, have blamed that on uh, an unplanned revival of reserve scarcity following the, the attempts made back then uh, to reduce the Fed's portfolio, the Fed's unwind. So are you concerned that an aggressive reduction, that, do you, you think the Fed could reduce its portfolio substantially and yet avoid repo market turmoil uh, this time around?
1: I I believe they could, particularly if they make changes that I've also advocated in the banking side, the other argument, they think the reserve scarcity is is a problem because as you recall, as you, I know, you know, banks pay a heavy capital price for holding excess reserves. The biggest banks have to hold capital of at least five and generally 6% on leverage ratio capital against those riskless excess reserves. That significantly distorts the financial system and leads to, under certain circumstances, reserve scarcity. The
0: so, repo market sorry. was
1: structuring to a much bigger role of non-banks who have no resilience. gets back to the shadow banking problem. And there have been several studies since, particularly from the Financial Stability Board, about the role of the non-bank participants in the, in the repo market, particularly certain hedge funds. And of course, they're highly illiquid, highly leveraged. And that significantly distorted what happened in September of 2019.
0: Well, it's time for us to turn to the audience now, Karen, and give them a chance to uh, uh, ask you questions. Um, the first question right. I have here is from, from, from Bob on Slido. And he asks, uh, what role do fintechs have to play? We haven't had a chance to talk about it. Um, do you see any, any role for fintechs in a future payment system? And I should uh, add that uh, you are pretty critical of fintechs and private digital currencies in, in, your, in your book. I think you'd agree with that characterization. Do you see, though, any positive role for fintechs to play like mobile uh, payments and that sort of thing, uh, which, after all, have done a lot, I think, for poor people or the unbanked in some countries. Uh, what you see is a positive role for fintech. All
1: right, I think it's a, it's a great question, and I do think, though, George, it's it you know the, our financial system is different than the one in Kenya, for example, You often cited as a great example of mobile banking, because we have a pretty frictionless banking system. Not the percentage of unbanked households is under five percent. Now that's too high, and the minority households are unbanked to a considerably higher degree. But people, lower income households disproportionately use cash, and many of them live in the digital divide. We saw this, as I show in my book. I mean, we've seen what happens when you suddenly go virtual on a critical critical service like education. How many households simply cannot sustain, they don't have, they don't have broadband, they don't have the computer equipment, they can't afford the bills. Finance is a critical social service, a social welfare function in the economy. And just because everybody on this call probably has a, you know, an iPhone 12 in his or her pocket, doesn't mean that's accessible. It's certainly not acceptable often accessible to persons with disabilities. I'm blind and I know because I've talked on lots of panels with all sorts of fintech people and they're all showing great stuff. They show these terrific apps. They don't work for people with vision impairment. They don't work for many of the elderly. So we need, I think, first to think really hard about inclusion in real terms, not just in terms of what it, you know how cool things look. But we also need to think about regulation. We have very asymmetric regulation and this is vital for the payment system because if we're going to have FinTech or big tech, tech platform firms like uh, Facebook and Amazon have major ambitions for getting into the payment system, can they ensure certainty? Can they ensure finality? If I get my paycheck channeled to me through the payment system from a bank and my account is actually with Facebook, well, I, and especially if it's in, say, their new digital currency, DM, once called Libra, how safe is that? I don't think we know, but the, I do know the rules are highly asymmetric and that until we have a sense of certainty and finality in the payment system, we shouldn't be experimenting with other people's money, especially poor people's money.
0: Uh, I'm going to ask a follow up that's related to this uh, question because of uh, the Bank of England back in 2017. uh they took a very different approach. Uh, they had a, a, a banking system that was much more concentrated than ours, I think just something like 50 banks, and those were the only ones who had access to the, the Bank of England's uh, settlement system and rails. And all of a sudden, they opened it up, up pretty wide. They uh, let in something like 450 fintechs I gave them the equivalent of what we call, what the Fed calls master accounts. They gave them settlement accounts. And uh, they said, they said this is a good thing. It's actually going to promote banking and uh, or or bank giving banking services to those who don't have access and otherwise improve payments and so on. They even said it would contribute to financial stability, which was quite interesting. Now, most of these are small firms, of course. Uh, We're not just talking about the facebooks and the uh, 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 and. um Walmart or Amazon, etc uh Apple so um what do you think about that policy? i mean is there is there scope? It's a big issue now is there scope for opening the door somewhat for at least some fintechs that can establish that they're relatively safe uh, and don't need to have all the regulations that we impose on on banks?
1: There's an important difference between the Bank of England and the Fed, which was the Bank of England has regulatory authority over even the smallest fintechs. And that includes not just the authority to require them to hold capital, which the bank, which the financial conduct authority is doing, but also requiring them to have certain kinds of disclosures and good practices and consumer protections. Uh, The Fed can't do that. So I think it's a great experiment and it does show the value of startup small ventures, but I think it also points to the importance of symmetric regulation. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, We have a question here from Pear on Slido also. He asks, uh, risk-weighted capital requirements force risky borrowers to pay even higher rates for loans. Why is the inequality driver, why is this? I think it, be, it should be this, why is this inequality driver ignored? Well, first of all, you should ask, have you ignored it, Karen, <laughs> or, or not? Oh, yeah. uh, and in any event, uh, is it important?
1: No, I agree. It's very important, and that's why I have a section in my book laying out how to revise the risk-based capital rules to make them less unequal. There is an assumption that poor people, lower income people are high risks, and that's not true. If you really look, for example, at what happened in the subprime mortgage, in, in the mortgage crisis of 2007 to 2009, the expectation was that it was subprime borrowers. Once you disaggregate that data, you find that subprime borrowers with low credit scores who took out Subprime loans for home purchases did as, did held up very well from a credit risk perspective. Prime borrowers who took out subprime or even prime loans for investment property, second homes, they defaulted at far higher rates. And we still somehow think that lower credit scores mean more risk, and often they don't. We need to reevaluate the risk-based capital rules and make them less unequal. I absolutely agree with that. And that's why in my book, I talk a lot about
0: that. Here's a question from Nick Hill on Slido. He asks, is it really the case that we had a bad recovery from the great financial crisis? What about preference-driven explanations as a cause? Um. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I quite follow that last part myself. Um, do you have any thoughts about that, Karen?
1: Uh, I think uh, the data demonstrate that the recovery was extremely weak in terms of GDP, in terms of what I think are appropriate measures of employment, real wages you know inflation adjusted middle class wages in 2019 were the same as they were in 20 in 2001 i i don't think we had we had we weren't in crisis but it was a very weak recovery through a prolonged recession that resulted in still more economic inequality there's many de- my book has a lot of data demonstrating that so i hope nick you'll look at the book and become more convinced that the re- recovery was in fact surprisingly weak as
0: well as unfair. Thanks, Karen. Here's a question, a couple questions, uh, new questions have come in. Uh, hold on. Uh, the first one is from uh, uh, Don on Twitter. He asks, uh, would you agree that the Fed's massive purchases of treasury securities encourages more spending, higher deficits, and debt? I think we're going to, uh, well, uh, I'll let you, I'll let you uh Uh, respond to
1: that. It's certainly part of the rationale behind modern monetary theory and the view that we can have a much higher deficit without any adverse macroeconomic cost. There's a great deal of focus now on the Fed's role as a quasi-fiscal agent. In fact, I'm being asked a lot now that my book has come out is that isn't one of the reasons that the Fed needs to keep rates ultra low is so that the government can borrow still more. I think we really need to think very hard about indirect central bank subsidization of social welfare spending. Personally, I am all for going big in terms of some of the stimulus rescues, but I don't think we should be looking for um, uh, secret pocketbooks through essentially printing money to fund them. I think we need to, to really deal with the fiscal realities and not let the Fed cover them up.
0: Uh, Brad on Slido asks, uh, how would you feel about uh, uh, the Fed, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, about a Fed financed universal basic income policy?
1: Again, I think that's funny money. If we if we can talk a lot about whether there should be a universal basis, basic income, but I think that should be Congress's decision responding to the voters, not the Fed's decision, thinking that it's good for us. One of the themes in my book um, is that we really don't want the central bank immune from political accountability, deciding what's good for us financially. It should be defining its mission very narrowly in terms of full employment, judged properly, Price stability judged with an eye towards the middle class ability to consume key goods and services and moderate interest rates. And it should stop there.
0: Topic of moderate interest rates. Uh, uh, Somebody asks, let me see if I can find the question because I, uh, here it is. It's from Bert on Slido. He says, he asks, uh, do you think the economy might function better if the Fed did not manipulate interest rates. So I think I would ask as a preliminary question, is it possible for the Fed not to manipulate interest rates? So there are really two questions here.
1: Well, if that's what central banks do. But they used to do that through open market um, operations by really responding to it from the market and doing that through the banking system. There's a lot in my book we haven't had time to discuss about one of the reasons monetary policy doesn't work well is because the financial system doesn't depend on banks anymore. The Reason the Fed has stepped into the markets to the enormous extent it has is because its ability to set rates through the old open market mechanism uh, is weak at best, and so what it's done instead is take over the market and with its view of the market as really the equity markets, the financial markets, not as the broader real economy that has led to a tremendous amount of unintended consequences. Yes, the fed should set rates, but I think it should do it very differently with a far better understanding of the financial system as it is not as it was.
0: It sounds like you're, uh... Might be <laughs> one of the few members, one of this that small elite group of people who think the Fed's old operating system was better than the new operating system with abundant reserves and all that. That seems consistent with a lot of things you say in the book. Is that is that a fair characterization Tara? That if you it could, you get the Fed back back to the pre-Fed pre two thousand eight operating system. Well, good for you. It really um, is. <laughs> I'm not supposed again. to editorialize them. <laughs> My opinion on this is pretty well known. Um, right. Warren asks, sorry, go ahead, Karen. Is there something else you wanted to add?
1: No, no, go right ahead.
0: Warren asks on Slido, uh, why is this not a larger discussion? Why don't more Americans get involved in this issue? Well, if your book's flying off the shelf the way you say it is, it sounds like it's going to become one. Uh, But do you have anything else to add (laughs) to to that question, uh, Karen?
1: Thank you, Warren. I wrote this book to try to make it a larger discussion. I I didn't need to do this. I have a very busy day job and a happy family life and lots of other things to do, nights and weekends. But I really feel that if the public had a better understanding of the Fed's unintended, the Fed doesn't want to make us unequal. It really doesn't. If we can force the Fed to realize that its unintended effect by driving money the way it has, again, that the fuel of the engine of inequality is money, and the Fed plays a very powerful role in it, I think we can make America less unequal. So why, I think we need to get that debate going. And I'm really thankful to you, George, the Cato Institute for having this discussion today, because I hope it is exactly the start of people speaking up. And asking the Feds some very hard questions and getting Congress engaged to ask similarly hard questions of the central bank.
0: Speaking of hard questions, and we only have time for a couple more questions at most. Kat on Twitter, oops, <laughs> my, uh, my chat box just moved on me because something new came in. Kat on Twitter asks, can you speak to the racial divide on access to financial markets and banking loans? And what about the Fed's uh, recent initiatives? Well, I, I, I'm going to take the liberty of kind of compressing that into a different question, which is, uh, do you think the Fed has, has uh, uh, anything to do with that racial divide, and do you think the Fed could uh, help to eliminate it, and how?
1: The Fed, I think, unintentionally is, has, partly because of the risk-based capital rules I was asked about before. There are other remedies to making regulation more equal and therefore far better for African-American and Hispanic households than it has been. My book has a, uh, several chapters discussing that. So I think there are ways very quickly to make the rules more equal and therefore enhance credit access. The, but when you look, for example, go back to unemployment, even the Fed now just in the last week has recognized that when it looked the way it looked at employment, it didn't realize how many black households were out of work or earning low wages. It fundamentally, this is not the economy, was never the quote, good place. The Fed keeps saying it is, when African-American households judged in terms of both income and wealth were before COVID, African-American households were worse off than they were before the civil rights era began in the, in the early 60s. Something really bad is happening. And the Fed can't, Fed can't enforce rules against discrimination, but it has to look at the unintended effects of driving money through the market because most investors are white. It just works out that way.
0: We have time, I think, for one last question. We have to, you'll have to do a short answer, Karen, to a, what might be a, a question that deserves a lot more. To what extent, uh, Adrian asks on Slido, to what extent do Fed officials recognize the impact of post-08 policies on inequality?
1: Short answer, they don't. I know my book is generating questions to the Fed and their view continues to be that they are responsible for monetary policy, which is this, this abstract good thing that works through the economy and inequality as well as racial inequity are the result, are the responsibilities of fiscal policy. You'll see other, poli- other central bankers like Mark Carney have said, well, you know, of course, central banking is monetary policy is always distributional. We do have equality impact, but that's up to fiscal policy. My book says, no, it's not. You can't make a mess and then wait for somebody else to fix it, to clean it up. The Fed has to clean up its own inequality mess. I think it needs to take responsibility for unintentional, but nonetheless powerful inequality impact.
0: Thanks, Karen. Folks, uh, I'm afraid that uh, we're out of time. And so we're forced to, to leave many of your excellent uh, questions unanswered. But uh, but thank you all for all of those questions. And uh, and of course, for attending today's talk, whether you asked a question or not. And Karen, thank you so much for your very thought-provoking book, book and for uh, answering uh, so many questions uh, about it today and for everybody. Please tell your friends that today's event uh, has been recorded and will soon be available uh, on Cato's website and eventually elsewhere, I assume, as a video so they can watch it as well. So long and stay safe.